0: United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short term plans at uh1.com.
1: That's. Yeah.
0: They have asked for that, really. France are going to the world called Get Over. This time, Ronaldo, is a cop. Boom, 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 the foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, it's actually a i, I have to ask you mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good luck. I don't draw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down
2: here? You're man? Manchester.
1: Manchester United snapped their losing streak at Northampton last night, but their manager didn't get everything he wanted from the evening. Owen Ken and Murph at your service for today's Irish Times Second Caps podcast. I honour you. Hello. Thanks very much for taking the time to be with us today. Pre-match last night, Mourinho was asked what he was looking for from Wayne Rooney, who was going to be operating as a number nine, further forward than he had been in recent weeks. Goals, answered Mourinho. Anything more? Goals, answered Mourinho again. I don't know why I'm making that sound like ghouls. That's not even deliberate. It's just in my psyche now. Are you hoping he might be able to play himself back into form, came a third question. I hope he scores goals. Well, Michael Carrick scored a goal, sure. and He got goals. He just didn't get Rooney scoring them. Goals happened near Rashford, him. Near him, yeah. None for Rooney. No. He uh, was, a, he, you know, we got a, a sort of an assist for Carrick's goal.
3: He hit a free kick from inside the box into the wall.
1: Yeah. De- deliberately deflected it out to Carrick. He and swept so, it into the net. You
4: know how difficult it is to triangulate the angle of the, that person's head that blocked the shot? Mm. And then, oh, not even if They didn't was, get it, it that high. Kind of hip.
1: hip <laughs> so it's sorry, sort of hip level.
4: Hip level. Do you know how hard that is? We
1: have to, be able to play hard.
4: play a shot off a lad's hip for it to rebound directly to Michael Carrick. He looks
1: around. He sees who's a good striker. At the ball Carrick doesn't get many goals, but he can strike a ball given a bit of a. But I don't ball. want
4: to roll it to him because then the the wall will just come out to him. The best way for me to get the ball to Michael Carrick is to hit it off this
1: guy's hip. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, who's got the strongest him. hip? oh that guy in the middle? He worked all this out, Ken.
3: Yeah. He he didn't get. Obviously, he's. His goal that that Maria was looking for. So, what does that mean? Does that mean he's failed the test? It's a it's a it's a strange thing to do to a player, isn't it? Um, to 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 lay it out so boldly in front of everyone. This is this success tonight means goals completely, yeah. And it means the player knows if he doesn't score, everyone will be like, "So, has he?" Has he failed? It's not a question of, did he play well? Well, the team won. That's good. Did he play well? Pfft, not really. I mean, I've seen him play better. Um, you know, uh, but he didn't score. Does that mean he, he gets dropped for the Leicester match? Um, well, Rooney
1: wouldn't have seen the pre-match interview, so.
3: Oh, but I'm sure he... I mean, it's not as though the pre-match interview is going to be a secret. Wayne Rooney is going to find out about no it. Presumably, yeah. presumably, he 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 would have been... Told about it? I don't know. Well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe not. Um, he he looks nervous. You know, he there was this story during the week. You know, the Telegraph had a story about uh, Rooney. Well, the story generally about Manchester United, which was an interesting story from the Jose Mourinho point of view, in that it was coming from somebody in the dressing room. It sounded like somebody who had been there had experience of Sir Alex Ferguson. Uh, because they were comparing Mourinho's treatment of the players to Ferguson's. I mean, there was a story uh, in The Sun as well a couple of days ago by Neil Ashton, which uh, had some detail on what was happening in the dressing room at Mourinho, accusing, you know, Mkhitaryan uh, and Lingard of of failing against Manchester City, uh, of of, um, haranguing Luke Shaw, which apparently players weren't too happy with, because A, Luke Shaw... He's obviously back from a traumatic injury. I mean, a really traumatic injury. He did a big interview a few weeks back where he talked about how just how grim that was. I mean, he couldn't walk for a long time. Um, Talked about how difficult it was even for him to forgive the player. Mm. Moreno had done it to him. You know, the player had apologised and Shaw had accepted the apology. And then, you know, a few months later, he's in his rehabilitation, his
1: leg is like throbbing with pain and he's thinking, you know. And he he has watched a tackle on numerous occasions as well, which I think... He's got to stop doing. I hope. I'm sure he has stopped doing now. But I was. I was quite struck by that. That he's thinking now. Maybe I should have been so quick to accept that apology. And then Mourinho pours on a bit of extra emotional ter- tor- torment. By what? What were you doing?
3: What? What were you doing? What were you doing? You know, in front of everyone, it's just kind of humiliating him. The point about it isn't so much that you know these uh, practices are exposed so much as the fact that someone is talking to a journalist, a rat, another rat. Remember the three rats at Chelsea? The, the person, the Chelsea supporter who had a sign.
4: Oh, yeah. The
3: three rats. Costa, Hazard, Fabregas, Cesc, I think they said. Hazard was spelled with two Zs. The three rats. There was no proof that they were, in fact, the rats. Although, I think most people figured that even Hazard <laughs> wasn't that close to Mourinho by the end of their time working together. But Mourinho was obsessed. This is, this is an obsession with him. The, the the idea of someone in the dressing room is betraying me, someone in the dressing room is talking behind my back, talking out of school. This this was the not only at Chelsea but at Real Madrid as well. This really really gets his his dander up, let's say.
1: Usually it takes a while for the rat or indeed rats. To start start squealing. Yeah, to start scurrying away out of that dressing room into the nearest waiting journalist in the car park and start squealing out all the secrets. Speaking of car
3: parks, actually, that's where they were training. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> there was photos of the Man United players training in a car park, literally a hotel car park. I mean I'm not talking about the pitch was like a car park. I mean if this was an actual, <laughs> actual. hotel car park with cars parked around and there's the Manchester United players and their their manager Jose Mourinho standing there doing calisthenics. Not not like a full 11 versus 11 practice match, more sort of stretching, and limbering that? up just to get themselves uh, in shape for the for the match against Northampton and uh, apparently this was the only Uh, facility that that, uh, was available at the time.
1: Mm. Great Rob Heffernan impression, by the way. Report on sport.
3: So, you know, the the Daventry Court Hotel, where standard double room costs £104 a night, apparently, according to reports but you know um whatever about that indignity Mourinho didn't seem to be in a good mood and I, I don't want to I know we've talked a lot about Mourinho recently and it doesn't seem as though we're just obsessed with talking about this guy although you know a lot has been a lot has been going on there and we keep seeing these sort of echoes of things that have happened before um i mean the Luke Shaw business the you know Gary Neville had had uh, remarked on this uh someone is you know, leaks in the dressing room already embarrassing you know he said this is ridiculous um he was presenting this as you know a, le- a leaky dressing room we know that there's some one thing marina doesn't like but i mean leaving aside that i'm sure that's going to be a that's a that's an, uh, a developing story you know i'm sure we'll be coming back to that but this question of uh what was what was said in the james Ducker piece in the telegraph was that this person whoever, whoever the Person was explaining said the criticisms are much more personal than they were ever were with Ferguson. You know, Ferguson would get really angry, abuse players in the in the uh, confines of the dressing room, training, whatever. Mm-hmm. But you get the impression he's usually criticizing what they are doing rather than what they are, which is an important distinction. Because if you're criticizing someone for making a mistake, for cocking up, for for doing something badly, that's that's fine. Sometimes you've got to do that as a as a manager. Um, but it's better sometimes, I think, it's better to focus on what they've done and what they've done wrong, what they need to do better rather than, you know, really going full on against yeah. them and who they are because they can't really less, do much about that.
4: A little less definitive.
3: That's something they can't, they're, it's not so easy to change as, you know, a bad, a mistake or a bad habit on the
1: field. Although publicly what he's been talking about has, have been mistakes. Have they not? Like this, Luke Shaw stuff. I mean, Luke, all the time with Luke Shaw is that he should have been pressing. He shouldn't. You know, it, it's specific tactical stuff. Which again, I don't think is a great idea for a manager. But it's different from questioning the identity of the man.
3: Yeah, um, it's it's true. But I, you know, I, the person who was speaking to to James Lucas, the piece I'm referring to, didn't say, uh, didn't give detail on which way these criticisms had been personal. Um, we do, however, have have some detail on um what happened before, you know, for instance at Real Madrid. That's why I'm talking about like these echoes of of things that happened in the past. And what's happening with Luke Shaw, Luke Shaw is is a, is a fairly junior figure in that team. You know, he's a young, he's a young guy, he's had a bad injury. He's not he's not like a, one of the top players in the team. Maybe he has the potential to be that one day, but at the moment he's kind of you know trying to make his trying to make a name for himself, let's say. Um he reminds me a little bit. It reminds me a little bit the fact that he's kind of emerged as as a guy who, who who's been sort of criticised. You know, there was this supposedly criticism of him in the dressing room, which which players were t- a little bit taken aback by. Reminds me a little bit of Pedro León at Real Madrid, Pedro León, who was also a, uh, you know, not a, a, a kind of a smaller player. Um, he wasn't, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, um, but he was a guy who a lot of the media certainly liked and wanted to see the team a bit more but Mourinho didn't really seem too keen to pick him Uh, uh, and it eventually provoked this response from Mourinho. Speculation is your profession Uh, in very pragmatic terms I would say that Pedro Leon has not been called up because the coach didn't want to call him up. President President Fiorentino comes to ask me why Pedro Leon hasn't been called up. I have to answer him but he's not asked me. You're talking about Pedro Leon as if he's Zidane or Maradona Pedro Leon is an excellent player but not long ago he was playing for Getafe. He's not been called up for one game. It feels to me like you're talking about Zidane, Maradona, or Di Stefano. You're talking about Pedro Leon. <laughs> you have to work to play. If you work because I want you to, then it will be easier to play. If not, it will be more difficult. So I'm quoting here from um, the special one, a great book by uh, Diego Torres. I know that people who, who are, you know, have been fans of Jose Mourinho's work, don't like don't like me referring to this, but it is by far the best book that's ever been written about Jose Mourinho. Uh he, he goes on to say, Mourinho spoke with a mixture of cruelty and pleasure. The sadistic nature of the rant unsettled the squad. It was the first time the players felt their manager represented a threat. Um, this is when they started to follow every public appearance on TV, via Twitter, via iPhones or Blackberries. They didn't miss a single appearance. They understood that in the press room a different game was being played out, one that would have a major effect on them professionally, a game that could ennoble or degrade them, place them in the spotlight or bury them with indifference. Um... You know he didn't. He didn't like Pedro León. Okay, that's that much is clear. <laughs> that much is clear, but um, he. What happened was, you know, everyone was like, "Oh, that's a bit much." Poor, poor Pedro. <coughs> excuse me. Poor Pedro León has been. Um, he he accused him uh, in front of his teammates of playing a, a vain and selfish attitude after the second game of the season. People are like, "Oh, this is a bit much." Poor Pedro León. Um, Rina thinks it's time to show that. There's no hard feelings here. We're going to have to have a press conference. Who's going to do the press conference? Pedro Leon. Uh, schools him in the questions to expect and the answers that he's got to give. So you've got this, pre- Pedro Leon, this is a press conference for, you know, it's I am delighted to be <laughs> working for Jose Mourinho. Yeah, what, what an the, amazing manager.
1: Mara Setters, Roy Keane, 1994. style. That's I'm
3: great. telling you, if we see Luke Shaw doing a press conference at some point in the next couple of weeks, I'm watching out for that. We'll wait and see. I mean, Mourinho was speaking. He didn't do a press conference last night. He, he kind of he kind of blew it off. Uh, no obligation um, because it's only the League Cup. Um, it's, it's something that he used to do with Chelsea a little bit, um, leave leave those press conferences. He, he, I, so I'm wondering where the quote comes from about the Einsteins that's coming around today because I haven't seen it in one of his TV interviews. He said, we had a bad week. I know that the world is full of Einsteins. I know that they tried to delete 16 years of my career. They tried to delete an unbelievable history of Manchester United Football Club and to focus on a bad week with three bad results. But that's the new football. It's full of Einsteins. So uh, the new football. Well, not one like of those the old, not like the old game that Jose Mourinho
1: grew up in. Gary Neville tweeted a similar sort of a sentiment making the point that in the run-up to the Manchester Derby Manchester United were the greatest thing since sliced bread and now they're a club in crisis He's, he, he was incredulous in his tweet and that's the way the club has been covered but funny enough Phil Neville was on TV Judy last night and said uh, yeah, to be honest when you lose one game with Manchester United it's a crisis three in a trot is a disaster mm. <laughs> so, so discord even in the Neville camp mm. <sighs> they can't even get their, their own story straight yeah. <laughs> yeah. well how many
3: times did they lose three in a row I mean it happened under under Van Hal and Possibly under Moyes as well, but you know these are these were regarded as really traumatic periods. I mean, the, the, when when it when it happened was kind of when everyone said, "Oh, this guy's not going to work out." Yeah, you know what I mean. So it, it's it's big when it happens. I mean, the last time it happened with Mourinho in the same season as we were talking about was was two thousand and two, mm-hmm. and he'd just taken over at Porto, and he's right at the start of his career. And by the way, two of the matches they lost in that run were against Real Madrid in the Champions League. I mean, Real Madrid won the Champions League that year. It was it wasn't like you know, what, what's, happened, what's happened here with, with uh, United. Pep Guardiola
1: has his own battle again. A battle he's winning, I think.
3: Well, he keeps winning games. I mean, this is an especially annoying feature of it, uh, as we were saying, for Jose. But nine wins in a row now. Uh, City winning again in the League Cup. But all the fire is coming from outside the camp. If Mourinho has problems inside that he's trying to resolve at the moment, Pep's under heavy fire from one particular angle. Uh, I don't think it's an angle he is really that care that he cares that much. about. it's not like he's under you know heavy fire that's really going to rip up his position and possibly fo- pose a threat to to him. It's more like say heavy fire from a beanbag gun. There's constantly he's trying to he's trying to go about his business and beanbags just keep coming at him from this angle and sometimes slapping against his head. Is there you know such which,
1: a thing as a beanbag gun?
3: Ah, uh, isn't there like a t-shirt gun? I mean, I, I don't mean an entire a huge i mean I'm talking about a mini beanbag on mm. not a not one of those beanbags that you would oh. that you would sit in if you, you went to facebook that's or something what, that's all i had in my head yeah i no, thought no.
1: that that really shouldn't should be decommissioned that particular well that weapon. that
3: would be a, a, a large caliber weapon yeah. but we're we're talking about a just an, an annoyance a pesky annoyance I you, yeah. and it's in the form of yaya toure's agent um now pep has has responded to this guy first of all um well, I mean, Yaya, Yaya Toure's agent, Dimitri Saluk, has said a few things. Um, obviously, we know that Yaya Toure is not a player that Pep Guardiola is counting on, let's say. Um, back in mid-August, Dimitri Saluk, talking about Pep, said, Pep is the best manager in the world. I just hope he gives Yaya the chance to prove he's still good enough for City. He is the perfect professional. Yaya, yeah, yeah, that is. He'll do his job. City fans know he'll do his best. Uh, but Guardiola has to learn all about the players he has available. And that was, uh, that was just around the start of the season. But unfortunately, Yaya you know, Toure didn't manage to convince Guardiola that he was still good enough. Uh, prompting Demetrius to look to say, this is, you know, this is a disgrace. If, if Guardiola wins the European Cup, he can say he was right. But however, if he doesn't, um, if he wins the European Cup, I will fly to Manchester and apologize to him. However, if he doesn't, he can apologize to me. Because what he's done is a disgrace. Pep Guardiola then during the week says, if I don't get, Yaya will never play for this club again. Until I get an apology from his agent, he has to apologise to the club, he has to apologise to the fans. It's unthinkable that when I was a player at Barcelona, that, uh, that my agent would come out, my manager, he said, would come out and say, speak, speak against Johan Cruyff, you know, who was, who was the, the coach of Barcelona. It's just unthinkable. So he can't, he can't do this, and he's not going to play until he apologises. Doesn't sound like it's going to happen. No. Um, if Pep Guardiola wants war, then he can have one. I will apologize to Guardiola if he will apologize to Pellegrini for what he did to him. If you're a gentleman, this just does not happen. He signed a new contract last year. Then he gets pushed out for Guardiola to come. Pellegrini was a gentleman. Guardiola also needs to apologize to Joe Hart. It's not right to come to England and get rid of the English players. Guardiola wants a new future for Hart, for Yaya. They won't be the last. Um, I spoke out because I felt Pep was being vindictive to Yaya. Unfortunately for Pep, we live in a world where you have the right to free speech. This isn't all one interview, by the way. This is a whole series of interviews. Um... Pep doesn't want players with personality. He only wants players who are scared of him and do what he says. The first thing he did when he arrived at city was pick a fight with Yaya and Joe Hart, two of the club's biggest players. Uh, They're both have big personalities in the dressing room. Guardiola doesn't like that. It always has to be about Pep Guardiola, and no one else. When you first go to someone's house, treat them with respect. You don't go into someone's house and ask them to leave. When Tura, <laughs> he was the same at unless, Barcelona.
4: Unless it's your house, he forced case, you know. Unless you've pretty much bought the house. Yeah. You can pretty much throw people out there, I think.
3: He forced Edward to leave. Zlatan Ibrahimovic, a player who lost 57 million, was sold for 18 million. When Touré left Barca, Guardiola told him he was going to a shit team. And now Guardiola has come to that shit team. That's the situation. And it's because Guardiola likes money. He likes money more than football. That is the situation. Guardiola talks about how this agent or that agent is good. But the reality is Guardiola protects the players of the agents he gets along with. Um, so on and so
1: forth. Uh, at which point he turns to the Manchester City fans. Are you all with me? Uh, <laughs> any, anyone with me?
3: It's true uh, that Guardiola and many Look at this army I
4: have, I have uh, uh, forged against you, Pep. Barca,
3: Barca or Barca. Luis Enrique came to Barca. They won just as many things that they did when Guardiola was there. Barca didn't win because of Guardiola, but rather because of the structure they have in place. It was Messi who made Barca, not Pep. The same thing happened to Bayern Munich. My grandfather could have won the league there. I'm sure with Ancelotti they will do even better. He goes on to say, of course, Manchester City... Uh, can buy whoever they want. They have a lot of money. Pep only goes where there is a lot of money. If he wants to prove himself as a great manager, he should go to Zaragoza or Sunderland. Let's see how good he is when he doesn't take over a great team and hasn't got half a billion pounds to spend. Could he do with Claudio has done at Leicester or po- Pochettino at Tottenham? We will never know, because if City don't win the league in the Champions League, they'll just give him another 100 or 200 million to spend until he gets right. That isn't good management. <laughs> I've never heard anything like this before. I mean, if you hear. Okay, I mean, the, we were talking about Mourinho, you know, the other week, saying, "Oh, Klopp's not a top coach," or "I don't like," you know, he. Mm. But, but, I mean, in terms of a full-on onslaught, I've honestly never heard anything like that.
4: Uh, is there a case that Gord, why why is Guardiola, Guardiola waiting for Yaya Torres' agent to apologize before he can play Yaya? I mean, I, it seems like you're you're punishing. Yaya Ture for something that another grown adult said?
3: Well, it's, it's his representative. I mean, he speaks for Yaya Ture until the day Ture says, I've I've actually sacked my agent. Sorry about all that. Uh, his views do not reflect the views of Yaya Ture. <laughs> you know, but but until he says that, I guess that this is... Uh, the agent is the player's representative.
1: I think, to be fair, the horse has probably bolted on this one. Just, mm. I'm just
4: thinking for you know <laughs> future reference.
1: Yeah, but he wouldn't be. If this was Sergio Aguero's agent, he most certainly wouldn't be taking the same line. The issue here is that he doesn't want Yaya Torre. Mm. He has to be pretty careful because Torre's been a huge player for the team. Although he wasn't that careful with Joe Hart, he just got rid of him. Mm. So, so that maybe shoots a little hole in my argument. But He can't get rid of Torre, though. Yeah, he
3: doesn't have anything to play for. I think he's retired from international football now. You know, Joe Hart. Joe Hart was like, if I don't go, if I don't go somewhere where I'm going to play, I will lose my place in the England team, which is what's, which is the the last big thing he's got left. If Guardiola saying you're not going to play for me, so he's like, okay, well I can't go to another. This, none of the other big clubs are interested in me in in England, and if I and if I don't play. I want to. I want to play for a big enough club. But if I don't play, I'm going to lose my place in the England team. Therefore, let's go to Italy. That that might be.
1: Uh, yeah, with a Tor- thing. with Torre, my point essentially is that he, if he, if this is a player he wants to get rid of, and you know maybe he doesn't particularly want to be seen as this completely ruthless m- uh, presence by the by the fans. Got rid to heart that there was only a small amount, maybe, of murmur, murmuring about that. But if he was particularly crude around. The, the dismissal and maybe the ending of the career of Yaya Torre uh, then he doesn't want to he, he like, he'd probably like to do that in a way that holds him up in a good light publicly and this does if, you know he's uh, nobody's going to be siding with the agent of Yaya Torre and sure the agent of Yaya Torre isn't Yaya Torre mm. but I haven't heard Yaya come out and you know and say Disavva- Disav- and disavow uh, this which, which is an easy enough thing to do
3: no um, and, and you know the case is just so bizarre I mean if 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 the true mark of greatness was succeeding at Sunderland or Zaragoza, why is Yaya Turi not playing for Sunderland or Zaragoza? Yeah, that's, that's crazy. I mean, it's just its one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard an agent say.
1: Yeah, he's, Oh, he's just going to spend another hundred million. Steady on there, buddy. This is the kind of thing you want the clubs to do. Yeah. You know? He
3: only goes to great clubs that give him loads of money. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, because he's, he's the guy everyone thinks is the best. You know what I mean? Why so, doesn't
1: this guy start representing crap players who earn no money? Yeah. Part-time players.
3: Just get out, just get out there. They're, they're all over the place, yeah. and 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 get them to Sunderland, where they can the the crucible of of where everybody you know. But uh, what else happens? Uh, obviously, the two are playing each other in the, in the League Cup. Uh, Manchester United against Manchester City in the in the next round, so that's going to be interesting. Um, comes in the middle of uh, big runs of games for either side. Champions League matches. Uh, well, not for Manchester United, but um, <laughs> uh, City have, have to play Barcelona, so. I'm in, in normal circumstances, they would be looking at resting players, but can they really, can either of them afford to do that? You know, winning, winning the games has a value beyond advancing to the next round of the League Cup.
1: It's like the Clásicos. You don't see the, the big players, Barcelona and Real, rested even in, league, in Cup games.
3: No. Um, no, usually not. So that's, uh, that's something to look forward to. Liverpool, against Tottenham, Chelsea against West Ham. Uh, Chelsea Beat Leicester. Cesc Fabregas uh, running the show in extra time. Scored two goals. Coming back from 2-0 down was was pretty good. Uh, I do have to admit David Luiz maybe could have got a bit closer to Shinji (laughs) Okazaki uh, for the couple of goals that he scored. Uh, However... Nobody's perfect.
1: Ken's David-Louise watch. I, f- I feel this could be a slot at some point over the course of the season.
3: Um, but uh, but the situation in Chelsea is, is interesting. I mean, there, there were reports there a couple of days ago uh, about the thing that we had been talking about after Chelsea lost to Liverpool in terms of the Abramovich post-match review. A couple of the papers reporting Abramovich furious at the display. Because apparently he had a meeting until one a.m. there. Maybe he was just hanging out in the box. You know, who knows? I don't know how furious he was. But you know, it seems as though he said to Conte, "You know that I, you know as well as I do that that wasn't great." Right. Um, so anyway, there's there's still uh, there's still going. Fabregas is, is an interesting case because Conte doesn't seem to fancy him too much. He when he scored a second goal, he actually did one of those Emmanuel Adebayor celebrations. I thought, what is Fabregas doing here? He scored he scored a goal. Turned around, started running, and I thought, he, he's not going to go and celebrate in front of Antonio Conte here. He'll get a kick in the face. You know, if he does a knee slide in front of Conte. But no, he ran past the dugout all the way to the other end of the field and then did the Adebayor knee slide to the Chelsea fans, his own supporters, um, as opposed to Adebayor, who ran to taunt the Arsenal fans, his <laughs> former supporters. But it was, you know, running the whole length of the field like that showed you how much this how much of a big deal this was to a player who can't get his head around the idea that a coach is leaving him out. this hasn't happened to him really before happened to him a little bit at Barcelona, but he played a lot more games than he than he sought out uh, he's talking afterwards about this you know, hopefully I can show that he's still very much um in public at least a good company man you know can't he's a great coach what a what a, wonderful a guy he is to work for um he speaks a lot. He spoke to me a few times. He wants the midfielders to be very complete, to be physically strong. We're training very hard for it. If you have to analyse me, maybe I'm a bit more the playmaker, creative going forward. He wants me to be a little bit more stable and compact in defence. For Matic, who's the opposite of me, he wants him to be better offensively. For Oscar, for Kante, he works at every aspect to be the best we can. Cesc is quite revealing. Mm. Um, you know, he, he he's given away a lot there. <laughs> Not just about what Kante is doing, but also about the way he sees... Okay, Matic is the opposite of me.
1: Yeah, how he sees other players. (laughs) Matic has no
3: creativity. Matic, by the way, set up the uh, only goal they managed to score against Liverpool. Has zero creativity in Seth Fabregas' mind. And obviously, physically, the question of his physical fitness is the the issue that Conte has. But there's one other Chelsea-related thing, which is to do with their goalkeeper, Thibaut Courtois. A man who has, over the last couple of seasons, kind of disappointed, I think. When you consider how good he was at Atletico Madrid you know he was constantly winning the best goalkeeper in the Spanish League this is a Mora award um maybe the Spanish League isn't full of brilliant goalkeepers um but he hasn't really been as good as maybe he was expected to be still a, still very young for a goalkeeper has obviously incredible potential unbelievable physical gifts but you know there are moments of really is that, I mean, what was the penalty he gave away recently? I, I, was it Swansea? Chelsea were playing ridiculous sort of moments like this. And mm, anyway, if, I think you know, from from Chelsea's point of view, they might be getting a little bit annoyed, especially with this interview that he's done, also uh, with the Spanish uh, press. He's well, he's quoted in Marca anyway, talking about uh, talking about Atletico Madrid, how great it was, and his, his great memories from there. Um, you can only win titles if player, every player gives their life for their teammates. That's how it, is, how it is at Atleti. They say, would you like to come back to La Liga someday? He says, when I left Spain, I knew that I would return one day. Talks about how much he loves Madrid. He says, I have a contract with Chelsea for the next three seasons. In 2018, when I'm in the last year of my contract, I'll evaluate whether it makes more sense to stay or go. I mean, he sounds to me like he really wants to go back there. Uh, he, goes on about, uh, he goes on about his different coaches. There's. Courtois and Simeone, who we played for at Lega. He lives for football and has a huge winning mentality. Everything he puts in, the team gives him back. The way he transmits is incredible. Just by speaking, he can make you believe and push your limits. And that's what we did. The reason go were better was because we were motivated. We believed, and belief is power. <laughs> what, what about Jose Mourinho? He says, he works a lot on tactical aspects and is also a winner. He normally gets close to players, but when results don't go his way, like last season at Chelsea, you could feel there was a certain distance. <laughs> Um, And Antonio Conte, he says, well, he's always thinking about football. Tactically, he's very strong. He knows what he wants out of his teams. He gets his ideas across with videos, training, and match simulations that show us he is right. In other words, we know at Conte that what we are working on, the matches will go well. So who does he sound most kind Mm. of enthusiastic about
1: there?
4: Now, you didn't read the three quotes in the exact same tone of voice, Ken. You're trying to play us. Well,
3: it would have been inappropriate to read the um, first one about Simeone in the Champions League weekly voice
4: <laughs>
3: it wouldn't have made any sense but you know I think there's the lesson for Chelsea here is if you are going to send players on loan and they do like to send a player on loan don't send them to Madrid send them to Donetsk send them to Wolfsburg
1: Madrid's just we Antwerp appealing as a football city is that what you're saying?
3: basically they're goalkeeper they thought we'll send them off to Atletico good coach You know, nice setup. He'll he'll learn the ropes and he'll come over here and we'll have a world-class goalkeeper. What they have is a world-class goalkeeper who's pining for Madrid. He wants to go back. He will go back. Uh, And it might not be Atletico. It's more likely to be Real Madrid. But this is is kind of a self-inflicted problem. It's like, oh no, he fell in love with a different city. Find an uglier city to send your loan players
1: to. Let's wrap up today's report on sport.
3: I wonder... What Manchester United are going to do now?
1: Reach out, touch base.
3: Just get Mourinho in. Just get Mourinho.
1: I think you know me. I want to work. Profile his winning record, blah, blah, blah. Kind of trashy, but trashy figure. You know that I have a big self-esteem and a big... Uh... Wrong, personal.
3: Jose. Kind of trashy.
4: Give the people what they want.
3: Come in. Tear the club apart from within and depart, leaving behind an accurate, festering swamp of resentment and division. Wrong, but it. Jose. No doubt. No doubt. Get on the phone to Mendez. The receiver, baby, a kind of trashy.
1: And it's going to be such accurate. The best manager. Out,
3: Get on the phone to Mendez. They have
1: no choice but to turn to Jose. They
3: owe it to football.
4: Reach
3: out and touch face. Don't you understand? It's already dead. The whole thing smells of death.
1: <laughs> okay, 20 years since Arsene Wenger landed in English football and you'll probably have read a few pieces around this subject in the last 24 hours or so. The best of which written by Amy Lawrence who um, has penned this piece for the Guardian just on Wenger's impact, the good times and I guess the more lean times in recent years. Amy, was it good fun going back through the Arsene Wenger era at Arsenal?
2: It was good fun and it also felt like... Um quite a big pressure actually I thought blooming that 20 years like where do you start and um, I really felt it was important to try and write something that wasn't just blah 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 hasn't he been around a long time and then he turned up and then he did this and then he did that because I suppose trying to contextualize and find some perspective on quite an immense period of time that has ranged um, in terms of success in terms of the emotion of of the, the different flavors of the era. Uh, that and, and I guess try and give a little bit of insight into the man himself. He, you know, people say about Vanga, he says it of himself. He's, been, he's lived it 20 years in England. And honestly, if you say, do you know your way around London? He hasn't got a clue. <laughs> it, it, he basically has been in this bubble, largely, of home, which is uh, the, the, the training ground, and Highbury stroke, the Emirates. Uh, and his home is kind of uh, roughly halfway between the the two um, so he 's he's he is a very private guy, and a lot of people don 't they think they know what he 's like because they 've seen him a zillion times say the same <laughs> things in press conferences and what have you but generally the press conference or the post match interview when a camera 's thrust in his face when he 's just gone through the emotions of a game. It's not really what he's like as a human being because he's not very good in those circumstances. He's a a very funny man, a a very intellectual man, um, a guy who worries about things, a guy who has foibles like all the rest of us, um, an interesting man. And and that's the thing that when I think back to the very first time probably that I ever met him um, 20 years ago when he arrived and began to talk to us, um, the first the first few times I ever went for a press conference or something, I, would, I remember vividly coming away thinking, my God, like I've never thought about anything like that before. And we've forgotten because everybody's now used to this kind of slightly cantankerous uh, version of Wenger that, that is in a more modern type of what he was like then. And it, it was like he'd come from, if not out of space, he was so different to what we what we were used to as as managers in English football. And it really was an education in those early days. He would constantly come out with something when he was talking about football that made you think about it in a way you'd never thought of before. And if it had that effect on a bunch of journalists, I would imagine it had that effect on a bunch of players who were learning things and seeing things differently to what they'd been brought up with.
1: Even just by the the fact that he wasn't from England or from Britain, he was so different. I was quite struck by the listing of the managers that you have from the 96-97 Premier League season. Uh, It's incredible. You know, it's Ron Atkinson, Jim Smith, George Graham, Brian Robson, David Pleat, these kind of guys. You're not going to get anything more contrasting, I don't think, than Jim Smith to Arsene Wenger.
2: No, and in fact, you know, one of the things that isn't ever really much discussed was how guys like Jim Smith were a bit put out and a bit, like, snotty, actually, about Arsene Wenger at the beginning. They were sort of like, well, who is this guy? And he seemed a, he seemed a, a, a funny fish, you know. Um, it wasn't easy, even from that point of view, that you're coming into a, a, a league with a bunch of players, um, a club a fan base, a media, who are all very unsure about what you're all about. And an instant reaction of people who come across new things quite often is to be snotty about it or take the mickey. So I, he he could sense what was going on, that it wasn't that straightforward as everyone going, oh, look, here's this here's this new interesting thing, you know, let's find out about it. Most people were reluctant, I think, in their instant feelings about what he would be like.
3: You make the point in saying I mean, that his uh, career, you can divide it almost quite neatly into two halves now. The first half where he won the league title three times uh, and the second half in which he's only won a couple of FA Cups. What do you think is the difference between the two halves?
2: Well, I think the difference is, is probably more the external environment than actually Arsene Wenger uh, or the, the, the way he tries to manage. And when you think about the first half uh, of his career, the fact that he was able to recruit players who were, you know, amongst the best in the world in their position. When you talk about a Vieira or an Henri or Pires or Overmars, and, and 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 he was able to find and bring players to the club who were really of a calibre that were, you know, as good as anything around, if not better. Um, and and clearly. That was partly down to his scouting network, the people he knew, the, the, the uh, ideas he had, the, the way that he could convince people. And once the ball gets rolling, once they win the first double in his first full season, and people see success, and people see uh, a, a, a fast, uh, exciting style of football that was like really uh, quite quite stunning to, to, to see from from that period everybody wanted to come and join Arsenal all of a sudden. It, it, it felt like the place to be and I mean that was just not the case when um, you know, in, even though they had some success previously under George Graham or in the year that Bruce Rioc was there, it didn't have an international kind of clout really as a club and that changed almost overnight so it became a, a buzzy place in football at a time when everything was changing. Now fast forward to the second half of his reign and The environment had changed so much just because of this huge influx of major money. Uh, Obviously, Abramovich coming and changing the landscape and Manchester City following suit. Um, Suddenly buying those... uh, You know, everybody having fantastic scouting, realising that you've got to try and sign a, a, a great player young before they explode onto the scene and watch them grow with you. And Everybody was at it, so it became... And a totally different environment. So trying to manage it the same way in the new environment, yeah. plus obviously having moved stadium, was had a massive impact on all the planning. Um, it just became something that he couldn't replicate.
3: He still did manage to pull it off a few times. So I mean, if you if you think of players like Ses Fabregas and Robin van Persie, I mean they they were signed young and turned into fantastic players at Arsenal, and obviously they all ultimately left him, which was kind of the problem. But when you look back at it now, I remember when he was when he was um, kind of 2006, 7, 8 and was saying let's we're going to have a team of young players, uh, you know, the Sess the Fabregas kind of model. Um, he he very much was putting across the idea at that time that he was doing it this way because this was the right way to do it. That he didn't want to do it the Chelsea way. That this was this was the only way that he would want to win. Uh, trophies uh, and be successful. But when you actually look back at it now, it does look as though he was probably covering for his board and the fact that they didn't really have any money at that time because of the stadium. And yet he took a lot of public flack for that, uh, you know, for this kind of ideological um you know sort of obsession that he had when in fact he was maybe just being kind of pragmatic and saying well we can't spend this kind of money this is what we've got to do and i'll take the flack maybe that's why they're so loyal to him now
2: yeah and i i i get that but i think when you say he was covering for his board that's quite interesting i mean i think that might be more the case applicable nowadays but back in that kind of 2006 2008 9 period I think that the relationship between the board and Wenger was incredibly strong. And Wenger, it was Wenger's idea to go with this Project Youth, you know. It was it was part of the plan. He, they, you know, he's an economist in his background. He understands how these things work. And even not taking into account Abramovich uh, and the effect of uh, of the mega money coming in, he knew that financially it was going to be restricted for a period of time and that the way to try and get around that and the mission was, although everyone ended up laughing at it, top four every year, getting the Champions League, that was the minimum requirement and see where you go from there. He thought if we can get these great young players and he had a history of going back to, to, to Analca, um, of finding teenagers that, were, that he developed into you know, um, an incredible diamond from the raw material. If I can get enough of these kids who are of that quality and get them to, you know, feel like they've been brought up in the club and developed together and they'll have a loyalty to each other, this could be the way that we can win. Plus, what Wenger's always called a financial doping where he, you know, ideologically, he does fundamentally detest the idea that you can buy, purely buy success, even though he knows you've got to play the game to an extent. Um, I think the fact that it didn't quite work, and it was quite close, they nearly won the league. Uh, a couple of times in that period. There was a famous example when Eduardo got his leg broke and they were in a fantastic position and it all just fell apart and William Gallas lost the plot as captain. And that was a a real one that that got away. Um, The fact that these players then started to leave and have their heads turned and go in search of greater riches and probably an easier chance of success absolutely was a bullet to the heart. I think for Venga. I think if you asked him what has been the hardest thing that you've had to withstand in your 20 years of Arsenal manager, it was that realization that this big idea that was going to maybe work, while he knew it was going to be a tough time, all ended up sort of being being kicked in his face. I think that was a, that was his probably hardest. That was probably a harder moment than when he's had more grief from fans in recent years for not winning this or that or terrible defeats like, you know, the 8 twos or losing 6-0 at Chelsea. Uh,
1: the <clears throat> most remarkable thing, Amy, about his longevity strikes me as being how he's not so much put up with the criticism of fans in recent years, but put up with his own self critiquing his own analysis. You know, you have a quote here, if you lose a day by not concentrating on winning, you feel guilty. The years and the years and the years teach you that every small detail can make you win or lose. Once you're convinced of that, you cannot allow yourself to relax anymore because you think, maybe I'm making a mistake at the moment because I'm not thinking about how I can win the next game. You know, some people in life, when they're successful, get more comfortable in what they're doing and uh, and maybe are buoyed by their success and don't get quite as stressed out by it. It doesn't seem to have been the case for Wenger.
2: No, I think... Um He's always been his, big, his own biggest critic, uh, even in the successful times. Uh, I, I, you know, I never got the feeling that he was one of those guys. And like like all the sort of repetitive winners, you know, Ferguson would have done the same, and Shankly, I'm sure, would have done the same. And, you know, you win something and straight away you're thinking about the next one. Um, and I think that, that even in the periods of not... whether he was winning or not winning, he didn't enjoy success for long. It was really straight into the next one. He, you know, defines himself as a winning animal. And of course, in recent years, some people don't see that element of him. But it's very much at his core. He's complete. He's been a, a workaholic from before he even came to the club. I mean, listen, here's a guy who left France in the French league, which was a you know very respectable league that he was uh, uh, well considered in. He had an opportunity to join Bayern Munich. It didn't work out for one reason or another. He went to Japan. You know, that's, that's he didn't have to go to Japan. He was going to get another job in a European league if he didn't go to Japan. Why did he go to Japan? It's because of the kind of person he is and was, which is someone with a dedication and a thirst for knowledge and an obsession about football, thinking, I'm going to try something different, I'm going to learn, and I'm going to make a success of of this. And, you know, it's an insight into the kind of person he was. When he arrived at Arsenal, Pat Rice was his assistant, and Pat Rice used to go and pick him up from his hotel where he stayed for the first few weeks until he got settled. And he said he walked into um the, the the hotel room that Benga was sitting in one day, he was a bit early and I said, I'll come up and uh, just hang out here for a minute while I get my stuff together. And he said he couldn't see the walls of the hotel room for videos. <sighs> it's like, what's going on here? And he, from day one, just has a thirst for watching football and analysing football and learning about football. And it's a complete obsession he doesn't want to go to the theatre on a night off or go to an event or even you know watch Bake Off just to have a sort of you know switch off from the you know the usual stuff he doesn't want that he just wants to be in football as deeply as he can
1: all, right, we'll all listen, the time yeah we'll tweet a link to the piece Amy well done thanks so many for chatting to us cheers that's a whole lot of intensity to be carrying around for 20 years at the same club mm. in the way that Arsene Wenger approaches football it is isn't it and
3: and I, I, I've, I kind of think now. I mean, okay, everybody says, "Isn't it great?" Well, not everybody, but you hear it a lot. Isn't it great? These managers, Wenger's the last of his kind. Uh, you know, there was Ferguson before him, twenty six and a half years. There was, uh, and Wenger, you know, two decades at the same club. Magna, you know, what a magnificent achievement. We won't see their like again. You know, the game's gone. As Jose Mourinho says, "This is this is football now. This is the new football. It's full of Einsteins." Um, and you won't get a, a guy like Fenger or Ferguson doing this again. It can't happen again. But should it happen again? I mean, maybe the sort of Guardiola method of working in short bursts, comparatively short bursts—three, you know, three years—taking time off to recharge, learn things, uh, relax, regenerate, and come back, change, go to a different club—is better. Not only for the manager themselves. Rather than sort of Wenger's been been in this almost institutionalized existence, just Arsenal, Arsenal all the time since 1996. Um, it's cost him a lot, you know, in, in, in his personal life. His his marriage broke up recently. You know, I mean, th- these are things that you've got to think. Of. If you're if you're living that way, you don't really have time for for anything else. Um, from a, from a human point of view, I think it's it's difficult. I don't know if it's. Even from and from the club's point of view, maybe it's maybe the other way is better as well. Even
1: Pep Guardiola only, he only took that one season off or that one break. Certainly, well, no, it was after Barcelona, and yeah. oh, he, he yeah, he didn't and he didn't take Byrne the break and after Bayern went straight through. So it's not as though it, it, it he has this policy in his career where he's taking a break after every sabbaticals job. all the time. He just had that one. He had an incredibly intense football life at Barcelona that has lasted from when he was eight years of age or whatever, and then he took a year off and has been. Back to the biggest club since then. So yeah, even the, even those guys don't necessarily... I don't know if that's a new model necessarily. I think managers do get a bit concerned that if they take too much time off...
3: They'll fall well, out, they drop out, out of the boat, picture. Yeah. That is is that that is true, and not everyone has, has all the trophies glittering behind them to attract the attention of, of people like Pep does. Um, but, you know, the, ch- the idea of changing from time to time... Um, I mean, Wenger used to do it. as Amy was saying, you know, he went to Japan. He didn't have to go to Japan. Why did he go to Japan? He went to Japan to see what things were like somewhere in a place that he didn't know anything about. And one thing that he brought back from Japan was his whole whole set of new ideas about what people should eat. You know, we've talked about this before. I went to Japan and after a while I I realized I haven't seen a single fat person here. Mm -hmm. Apart from sumo wrestlers. (laughs) You know, what? what's what's the story? And he figured that it was, was because of their diet. You know, this is the, people are eating rice, fish, vegetables, not really too much of other stuff. It's not like they're stuffing themselves with bread and, you know, meat, like back in Europe. It's, uh, this is what people should, you know, he's, he's been doing that ever since he got his players to do it. And those are the kinds of things that you, you kind of only learn by doing something different. So, if he has gone a bit stale, or if Arsenal kind of doing the same thing over and over, is it really any surprise, given that the, you know, the last time Arsene Wenger was exposed to a new influence
4: Arsenal Football Club. was
3: more than
1: 20 years ago?
4: We are fucked blood. I'm telling you, fans.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of intense managers, our first pod today features lots of chat about David Fitzgerald's resignation as manager of the Claire hers Barcelona and Atletico played last night. They drew 1-0. Barcelona were 1-0 up. Mascherano, Javi Mascarano slipped over to help Atletico score the equaliser from a quick free-kick move. That happened just after Leo Messi got injured. He's got a groin problem. He's going to be out for a few weeks. So, Sidlow, not a great day for Barca, really.
0: No, not a great day. And, and of course, one of the things that will be frustrating from their point of view is that it was shaping up to be a very good day indeed. It came off, it came off the back of... Real Madrid drawing against Villarreal at the Bernabeu. In other words, they are in a position where victory against Atletico Madrid would have put them just one point behind Real Madrid, would have kind of evened up the fact that they'd been beaten this season and would would have really tightened up the title race. It would, of course, also have left Atletico Madrid some way adrift because they were 1-0 up and they'd got that opening goal, which tends to be the most difficult one, and were playing really, really well. And then in the space of nine minutes, you had Sergio Busquets go off. Then you had Leo Messi go off. And and actually, that nine minutes is nowhere near as long as that, because Leo Messi was down and taking his time going off, taking out his shin pads, undoing his boots for the best part of three or four minutes. You're talking about kind of ball in play, probably only three or four minutes, between Walschett going off, Messi going off, and Atletico Madrid scoring. And and Barcelona were caught by the free kick a a little bit sluggishly. It was a curious one. It was almost played as if we haven't really taken this. And then while no one was looking, suddenly, bang, Gabi plays the pass Ingo Atletico, 90 minutes defined by a, a kind of a five or six second play and, 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 and a really bad, a really bad, um, dropping of two points from Barcelona's point of view because of how good the situation would have been had they won it. Um, and then, of course, because they, they lose, Busquets, probably not a big deal. He, he'd had flu, so I imagine he'll be back for the weekend. But Messi for what looks like it's going to be three weeks. At least that's what the club's saying.
3: Yeah, it was the kind of goal you can imagine Diego Simeone being particularly delighted with. Um, but during the week, this... this sorry, sorry,
0: I said I interrupted I was just going to say, sorry, I remember, I remember talking to <laughs> talking to Graham Hunter about this, because there's a phrase that me and Graham Hunter particularly enjoyed was a, a Graham Soonis phrase where he, where he always talks about you find the dope you know, find the player that's a little bit switched off and, and go for him and take advantage of him whether it's from a quick frame or a quick free kick and, and last night was the classic find the dope moment you know, you've know, you got a free kick um, Atletico would take it quickly enough that Cocker the player that's been fouled is still sitting on the floor no one's quite ready the only Barcelona player that really reacts is, is PK and he's a fraction slow uh, Torres and Correa have been on the pitch less than a minute both get their first touches to create the goal and, and suddenly go oh it's gone. It's taken away from them, just like that.
3: So who was the dope in, in that occasion? Because it seemed as though there was a lot of guilty men. I
0: suppose if you look at it, you could, you could sort of say that you've got... If you look, there's a photograph, which I found myself kind of really drawn to this morning. I saw a photograph. I, I was watching it, um, and I've done a still of the, of, the, of the screen. And you've got Kocke sitting down. You've got two Atletico players just behind. And you've got um, Felipe Luis, who's just about to take the free kick. Two Barfone players just in front. Gabby, about two or three metres across, a Barcelona player next to him, which I, I'm not sure who it is. You've then got the Barcelona deep midfielder, Andre Gomez, kind of... Strolling across to his position, you've got the right back, Sergio Roberto, going back and back his back is turned to the play. And, um, and, you know, genuinely, there must be seven people in a five meter square, one of which is the referee who almost looks like he's kind of taken a, a back bite a bit. So I suppose you could say that the dope really is perhaps Arla Turan for giving away the, the free kick, but a combination of maybe Turan, Rakitic and, and Andre Gomez for not being quite ready enough. but Maybe it's not so much the the, the the dope, it's just the sharpness of, of the Atletico player to, to take that little moment and, and you know, make the most of it.
3: Yeah, this is the kind of stuff that Simeone is, is re- renowned for, I guess, you know, getting the team focused in every second. Um, it was a, a bit strange to hear, though, a couple of days ago, that uh, Simeone, who had a contract up to 2020, um, had asked the club, had agreed with the club, to take two years off the length of his own contract. I mean, so is it so... I mean, he's he's getting paid a lot of money, he's owed a lot of money on this contract, and he's saying to them, now, I want you to take two years off the deal. Why did he do that? It just seems such a strange move.
0: Well, his explanation for it was no explanation at all, in truth. Um, his explanation, you know, he said things like, well, who knows, they might want to get rid of me, and, and, and it's better this way because you're, you're playing for objectives. And you know that old cliche that he's used for the best part of four years now, game by game, or well, maybe contracts have to be year by year, that you you keep on... Earning the right to have the new one. And he made this great phrase. He said, yes, it's true that the contracts change, but nothing changes. Well, no, the contracts change, and everything changes in a way. Um, the strong suspicion is an, an, an element of this. There are bits of this we know. We know, for example, there was interest in Simeone this summer from uh, Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, I think Chelsea were interested in him as well. Um, and the, I think the strong suspicion is that there was a moment this summer when Simeone thought about going, whether or not he actually did, you know, would have gone is is another issue, but certainly thought about going, and was confronted by a contractual situation in which doing so wasn't that easy. And I guess he's probably thinking, I don't want to be in a position again in the future when I'm stuck. Um, So having signed for 2020, let's bring it down to 2018. I'll commit myself to seeing Atletico into the new stadium, which is everybody's big obsession, which in theory happens at the start of next season. Um, But then I don't want to be bound by this, because of course Simeone, like anyone else, um, will have a, a buyout clause. Now, the biggest clubs probably will pay for that, but it might be that he's in a position where that won't happen. It might be, and, and yeah, there's a suspicion, but we don't know this for sure. There's a suspicion that there was an opportunity to go this summer, which maybe would have been taken had he not been contractually obliged to stay, or at least obliged to stay if no one pays up this clause. And so it, it, it feels very, very much... Um, and, you know, this is without knowing the, the, the full details of, of, of that contract. It feels very much that this is about gaining himself the chance to walk away if and when he wants to. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that in 2018 he might not sign another two-year deal and stay for two years longer. But in a way, I don't, I don't really think anyone begrudges him this because the do thing think he's achieved for Drift. So the fact that he's already been there. Um, the best part of four times longer than most managers last at Spanish clubs, and in particular at Atletico Madrid, and that he would have earned that. And, and in any case, we're still two years away from the end of the contract. At the weekend, for example, the Atletico fans chanted his name. There was no recrimination for having done this. It's concern, of course, but no recrimination at all. And, and so I, I think, in a way, the, the, the fact that the club allowed him to was probably their way of saying, look, let's just not have a pissed-off manager. You know, yeah, let's I, give him I, what he wants and, and if things go well well then maybe we'll renew later on
1: I did want to ask you that side of this because it sounds great for Simeone but what exactly is in it for uh, for the club just to kind of What's to say, keep on an even keel
0: I think it's that I think it's that I mean I, I, I think it's a case of saying right well look he's asked for this he's given us so much but I don't, I don't think we should be kind of kind of glazed eyed about this or roman- over romantic about it I don't think it's as simple as he's given us so much he deserves it let's let him have it I think it's more that hang on, let's let him have it because we're still two years off. We're still controlling for a bit. He's committed to to the new stadium. And what is the point of of, of having an irritated manager? Why don't we give him what he wants now, hope that in two years' time, assuming everything's still going well, which it may not be, that we we can then encourage him to stay for longer. And I just think they were probably thinking, because you know what, if we don't give him what he wants, then maybe at some stage we'll have a fight on our hands, maybe it'll turn ugly, and maybe the you know, the kind of the collateral damage or maybe even the direct damage of it would be far too great. It's much, much better to have a situation in which kind of everyone can end it in the right way if and when the time comes. I'm just trying to imagine Diego
3: Simeone on the sideline at the Parc de France in front of that boring crowd that doesn't really care. (laughs) You know, like, sometimes you get a good uh, match between manager and club, you know, and this kind of cholo gangster thing that Diego Simeone does kind of really fits, you know, everybody loves him in Atletico Madrid, he's whipping the players year after year and they love it, and I just, I wonder you know, it's the idea that, oh, Atletico will be lost without Simeone, but I wonder if he would be as successful at a, at a different club
0: I think, I think there's an element of that and I remember when, when the first rumours emerged in I can't remember when it was, I think we are talking probably back in February or March, the suggestion that he might go to Chelsea, and I remember at the time speaking to people at Atletico and, and speaking to people around Simeone and writing a piece saying, you know, this is a guy that doesn't really, at least right now, doesn't fit at Chelsea. I remember writing at the time that, you know, that there is this desire to see them into the new stadium, to see Atletico there, to, to have the kind of the connection, the emotional connection, because Simeone talks a huge amount about pertenencia, the, the the sense of belonging and the importance of that. Now, of course, that that whole discourse has, has been reinforced with the return of Fernando Torres with his own past as an athletic country player. And at other clubs, he wouldn't have that. Now, that's not to say that guaranteed he wouldn't go, because ultimately, you know, someone drives a big truckload of cash around your house and it tends to change your mind. But And, and big clubs will, will, will still attract him. But, but I think there are some clubs that it, he wouldn't be. I think you're right. He wouldn't fit in quite the same way that the, to use that terrible word, philosophy wouldn't be his. Um, for what it's worth, he's intention has always been, it's not to say it will happen, but his intention has always been that Italy becomes the next stop. Um, And I I can see him at Inter Milan uh, quicker, quicker than I can see him in the Premier League. That's not to say I don't think he will go to the Premier League at some stage, but but at the moment at least I would say that his more likely career path, assuming the money's right, that the, the squad is strong enough, that the conditions are the right ones, I think his more likely career path is to Italy before England.
3: Yeah. I mean, he knows the football there. He knows the culture. He knows the language. It's, it seems like a better fit for him. But, I mean, the, the other question is about the, you, you mentioned Atletico's new stadium, which supposedly they're going to be moving into next season. What uh, What do people feel about the new stadium? You know, moving, gra- moving ground is always a little bit um, uh, discombobulating, I suppose, for supporters. And uh, Not everyone is keen on the New place. What what's your opinion of the uh, La Pineta, I think it's called or pineta uh, the Pineda, st- yeah. the stadium yeah, atletico I mean, building. What's it like?
0: My my personal opinion. I don't know whether or not Atletico Madrid fans share this. Is that is that in many ways this is an enormous an enormous pity um, that Atletico Madrid they're not just moving, they they're moving to the other side of the city. They're moving more or less from... Well, they're moving from the south up to the northeast, up to near the airport. They're moving from territory which has become... More or less half and half, broadly speaking, perhaps Atletico Madrid supporting territory to what's very definitely Real Madrid supporting territory. They're, they're going to a point of Madrid where the, the access is different, the identity is different, the sense of the environment is completely different. Even things are simpler. And I, know, I know this doesn't matter, but as a kind of a symbolic thing. The opening line of their official anthem is, I'm going down to Mantanares, which is the stadium, which is where, where the stadium is alongside the Mantanares River. It, it, it feel, I think it feels like, um, something which runs a risk of massively losing a big chunk of, of their identity now the stadium will be better yes it will hold more people yes it will generate more money probably um the calderon's a little bit a little bit kind of crumbling yeah that all of that stuff is true and this is a, a financially a very very valuable package for them but i'm, I'm not completely convinced by it i'm quite surprised in a way that there hasn't been more resistance from Atletico Madrid fans. Perhaps as the season goes on, perhaps as we get closer to that moment, there will be. There's definitely a sense of this being a special season because it's the last one at the Calderon. But I don't think, um, and, and I may well be wrong, but I've not been aware of, of any sense of that really properly being translated into protests, properly being translated into, actually, you know what, we don't want to go.
1: Okay, so we'll keep an eye on it. Brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. My pleasure. That's kind of strange that... Um Stadium move it sounds exactly the kind of thing that supporters would usually protest about. So it's it's funny that it hasn't happened for Atletico fans. Maybe it, they're
3: just beaten down. They go, "Of course, we're of course we're moving to an out of town stadium on the opposite side of town." We are Atletico Madrid. This is the kind of stuff that just happens to us.
1: Or they're sated by their recent success.
3: I don't think so. I mean, it does seem to go very much against their whole the idea of the. The club as being, you know, a real thing, like an organic thing, not like this um, globalized sort of marketing phenomenon that Real Madrid is, but, you know, the real, the heartbeat of, of the city. Um, you know, like Dortmund in Germany, Echte Liebe, all this kind of, that, that Atletico are the kind of equivalent of that. So to move to a soulless bowl on the other side of town just seems, all I can say is the financial terms must have been pretty good.
1: Joy Barton has a book out this weekend? No oh, yeah. no nonsense he's been doing a lot of no nonsense interviews to uh, coincide with this. Uh, yeah. What, what have you made of what you've read so far, what you've seen so far?
3: Well, I mean he he obviously Joe Burton's having some having a few issues at the moment. He f- falls out with, you know, the some some of his teammates and the manager at Rangers gets suspended for 3 weeks and then is being is being investigated for supposedly betting on the Celtic Barcelona match. By the way, I'd love to know which bet he had. Did he bet on Celtic to win that? Because they did lose 7-0. Or was it a case of he went home and thought, ah, Celtic really aren't all that, you know, Barca plus four. I don't know. I'd love to know. I haven't seen any any details in the bet. Just that he allegedly bet on this game. And a footballer isn't supposed to bet on football. It's just, it's the beginning of a slippery slope that leads to some bad places. So he does have a few uh, problems. I mean, his... His interviews just strike me sometimes as you know he begs himself up a lot. Who you know what does Sam Allardyce have that I don't have as a manager? <laughs> you know what I mean. I could be as good as Sam Allardyce. Thinking really, Joey, like, but I but it, I think rather than just sort of laughing at him, which is, which is, would be easy to do, uh, it sounds to me a lot of a lot of this kind of stuff like the stuff that he's learned in therapy. You know what I mean? It's kind of like these are some mental tools that he's learned to try and keep the black dog, you know, at bay.
1: Yeah, Barton spent time in the Sporting Chance Clinic and came under the mentorship almost of uh, Peter Kay, one of the, the co founders of that movement and um, of that organization, and really seemed to latch on to all the ideas. It's like, this, this. is a guy who needed a lot of help and found a guy who was willing to help him and he sort of espouses now a lot of the stuff that was said to him. Sometimes he can sound like he's speaking a little bit from a self-help manual, uh, mm. Joey Barton, but obviously it works for him. Works for him to a certain extent. It's not as though he doesn't have incidents anymore.
3: No, I mean, he, they're not as bad as they used to be though. They're not, I mean, I, I can't remember the last violent incident he was involved in. I mean, that's, that's always been the problem with yeah. Barton, like it kind of uh, a tendency to respond to provocation with violence and also um, a pretty liberal definition of what provocation is, almost everything, at one point in his life. Um, so he kind of, at least, now he just says things which annoy people. You know, right? he was essentially, so what did he, he's That's supposed gross, to have said, right? my baby daughter is older than this club, or something like that to Rangers. <laughs> you know? Or who is it he called Boxing Glove Head Ian, Ian Dowie. Ian Derry. I mean, that was actually back in his in his bad days. He called Ian Derry boxing go He He remains proud of it to this.
1: One of my best put downs to this day.
3: I don't even know if it was his. I mean, maybe it was something that the kind of thing players say to each other at training. It sounds <laughs> as though maybe it was a a crowd sourced uh, <laughs> insult. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, like he, he, there was that whole period that he went through when he was, he, he was reading like um, Nietzsche and. Orwell and listening to, he was he was quoting Smith's lyrics all the time, and people were laughing at him then as well because it looked as though he was kind of, it was like the, almost the definition of of intellectual pretension, you know, he like he was trying to to imitate a kind of intellectual or what his idea, what he took an intellectual to be, but I always felt a bit uncomfortable about that because it, with Barton it was kind of the case that he was clearly. Discovering this stuff for the first time. You know what I mean? Like, maybe people who went to university might have read this, uh, you know, might have <clears throat> encountered this kind of thing earlier in their lives. Joey Barton was playing football. Joey Barton became a professional footballer. You know what I mean? You don't really you can't, you don't have infinite time to do all these things. So, when he was kind of doing that a few years ago and, and tweeting all this stuff,
4: the pretension and snobbery was actually
3: the enthusiasm of a much younger person. Yeah. Like
4: and he, also the the, but also the pretension. Of snobbery was on the other side of people reading these tweets, not with Joy Barton.
3: Absolutely, you know there it, it was this kind of ha ha, you know, as though someone shouldn't be allowed to try to. I mean, what are we are we going to say that you can't change yourself? You know that that someone who once stubbed a cigar out in the eye of uh, you know youth team player can't now sort of be quoting passages from Orwell you know what i mean and and sort of be you know criticizing uh, politicians who advocate violence you know what i mean you can that that are we saying that that that's not possible that you are from forever from now on the cigar stubbing guy that you are just that you are just the are just the, molt, the burning end of a cigar squashing into somebody's eye and you can never be anything else I don't think that's particularly fair either
1: no not at all I do find some of the stuff he comes out with though to be ludicrous <laughs> ludicrous well <laughs> e- like even the even even in a footballing sense the the fact that he is up you know, he's, I don't know if it was the, if it was the Donald McRae interview or was it the it could well have been the Daily Mail interview I read the other day he's done a few of these interviews promoting the book and I could be mixing one up with the other at this stage but he was making it as though he was almost doing a favour to Scottish football by being Joey Barton and being in their country and going down to their crappy level and and trying to teach them a thing or two about how to come up to his level. Yeah, you know? And yeah. then he's in the middle of all this. And then, in fairness, he does sort of make a joke at his own expense. It's, it's like he can be in the middle of all this and then, then realise... I think he sometimes realises himself. Maybe he's talking himself into a ludicrous position. Mm. But I just don't know. This is the thing. He's He's a character full of conflicts. And they seem to have been brought out quite well, quite skillfully. I haven't read the books, so I don't want to judge a book before I've uh, before I've actually read the bloody thing. But Michael Calvin seems to have done a good job, based on what uh, what what uh, what I've read so far, or what I've seen said about the book. Uh, Calvin, we talked to last year about Living on the Volcano, yeah. the excellent uh, book about football managing football managing, which actually ties into the sort of stuff we were talking to Wenger about. Uh, about with regards to Venger earlier on. So I'm looking forward to I think the my bottom line is I'm looking forward to getting stuck, in, into, getting stuck into this Joey Barton book. Yeah. About, no
3: nonsense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, or only um, some of it is nonsense.
1: <laughs> that's pretty much it. Thanks very much, Ken. Thanks, Alan. Thanks very much, Kieran. Thank you, all. Thank you, Ken. Thanks so Thank much for listening. Ciaran. Cheers for taking the time. We'll talk to you soon. How it? What is that,
0: That's the second time it's gone off
4: never go